Father, we thank you for this story of Jesus' transfiguration, for what it reveals about the glory of who he is and what he's come to do. Father, we pray that that same glory would inhabit us, that it would inhabit inhabit us as a community, your church, the temple of the living God, that it would inhabit each of us individually, that we might glow and shine and burn with the glory of your spirit. Oh, Father, we pray that you would plant your word in us today that might grow and bear fruit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know how when you go to the movies, before you actually get to see the movie you came for, uh, they subject you to these movie trailers, basically these extended advertisements for upcoming movies. These movie trailers are previews of coming attractions. What they do is they give you these little brief snippets of what is to come. Now, have you ever watched a movie trailer, and just from those little snippets that you got, you thought, you know, I I think I know what that movie's about. I think I know how that story's going to go. And then you actually go and watch the movie, and you realize that you had gotten it all wrong. You had connected the dots in the wrong way. You had not taken those little snippets and put them together in the right kind of narrative, the narrative that actually was the one the movie teller was going to present when the movie came out. Something like that happens with the disciples here. The transfiguration is a kind of movie trailer. Uh, Along with the previous passage at the end of Mark 8, it is a preview of coming attractions. The disciples look at this, they look at this transfiguration, and they start to connect the dots, and they think they, they know the way the movie is going to go. They think they know what's coming but they're going to get it completely wrong. We don't want to repeat their mistakes. We want to get it right. We want to understand how this little snippet, this snippet of glory that is the transfiguration, how it fits into the whole movie, the whole big story that God is telling through the life and ministry of Jesus. We want to get this event right because this really is a crucial passage in Mark's Gospel. happens right here in the middle of Mark's Gospel. Very critical. Uh, We can't talk about everything that's here. This passage is so full and so rich. So we're going to talk about three things this morning. We're going to talk about the mystery of the transfiguration. That is, what it reveals. We're going to talk about the misunderstanding of the transfiguration. That is, how the disciples, particularly Peter, get it wrong. And then we're going to talk about the meaning of the transfiguration what it means for our lives, how it applies to our lives. So those three things, the mystery of the transfiguration, the misunderstanding of the transfiguration, and the meaning of the transfiguration. Let's talk about each one of these. First, let's talk about the mystery of the transfiguration. What is the mystery of the transfiguration? What does this event reveal? Well, let me remind you where we are in Mark's Gospel. This event happens in the midpoint of Mark's Gospel. Really, it's the turning point of Mark's Gospel. The end of Mark 8, the beginning of Mark 9, this is really the hinge, the the pivot point for the whole of Mark's Gospel. The first half of Mark's Gospel deals primarily with the question, who is Jesus? The second half of Mark's Gospel deals primarily with the question, what has Jesus come to do? 
So the first half of Mark deals with his person. The second half concerns his purpose. Now, I think you see that as the turning point because uh, at the end of Mark 8, as soon as Peter answers that question about the identity of Jesus, as soon as Peter confesses to Jesus, you are the Christ, we really turn the corner and Jesus begins to talk about what he's come to do. Specifically, he begins to talk about his cross. And what we see is that Jesus will not die in spite of being Messiah, but rather because he is Messiah. His Messiahship will take cruciform shape. To be a king, to be God's appointed king, God's anointed king, means that he has come to lay his life down for his subjects, to serve his subjects, to rule over them by loving them unto death. However, Jesus has said he will not only die, he will also rise again. And what we have in the transfiguration is a sneak preview of his coming resurrection glory, a glimpse of what is to come. So he has previewed the cross by talking about it. Now he previews his resurrection by giving the disciples a glimpse of that coming glory. Now, um, I think this needs a little bit more explanation. Sometimes people think that the transfiguration happens so that Christ's deity could be revealed. They had figured out that he was man, you know, he was a, a man who had come to do great things, but what they really needed to know is that he's God. And so on the transfiguration, in the transfiguration on the mountain, he reveals to them his divine nature. It's as though his divine nature peeks through his humanity here for a few minutes. Uh, I don't think that's quite the right way to put it, and at best I would say that's half true. That's half the truth. I do think this is his deity on display. I don't think there's any reason to deny that. Everything Jesus does, he does as the God-man. And so when Jesus glows with glory here, I think you could say he's not just reflecting God's glory the way, say, that Moses did when he had been up on the mountain in the presence of God and then came off the mountain and glowed with that reflected glory of God, or say the way Stephen glowed with glory in the book of Acts just before he was martyred, he was so close to God, God's glory had rubbed off on him and he was shining with that reflected glory. I don't think that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus here is shining with his own glory. He produces his own glory. He shines with glory before the glory cloud overshadows them. He shines with his own glory. He's not just reflecting someone else's glory. He's revealing his own glory. This glory originates with Jesus himself in a certain way. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 describes Jesus in this way, it says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. There it is. The radiance of God's glory. That's the radiance that is put on display here in the transfiguration. But this isn't just divine glory. It's also human glory. And I think that's really the other half of the truth here. This is indeed a revelation of Christ's true humanity. See, God made man glorious. He made man for glory. Psalm 8, uh, David asked the question to God, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? And then he says, you have made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. 
See, man was made to wear a crown, a crown of glory, a crown of honor. God made man to share in his glory in a creaturely way. God made man to reflect his glory back to him. God made man so that we might reflect God's glory back to him and reflect that glory to one another. We were made to shine. We were made to glow. It's sin that has dimmed us. It's sin that has put the lights out, so to speak. It's sin that has darkened us. Jesus comes to reclaim that glory. All have sinned and fallen short of that glory. Jesus comes to reclaim that glory for humanity. Many point out that the transfiguration connects with Jesus' baptism, and it certainly does. In the baptism of Jesus, the Father's voice speaks from heaven, declaring Jesus to be his Son. Here you have the same thing, an echo of that voice. The Father speaks again, declaring Jesus to be his Son. So the transfiguration points back to his baptism, but it also points forward to Jesus' resurrection, to the glory he will enter into when he rises from the tomb and ascends into heaven. And indeed, when you compare this description of Jesus here, this vision of Jesus here in Mark 9 with other descriptions we have of the risen and reigning Jesus, you see some similarities. For example, John has a vision of Jesus in uh, the opening chapter of his Revelation. And there in Revelation 1, we find Christ is shining. He's shining with white garments and white hair. His eyes are like flames of fire. And his face, his countenance, is shining like the sun. It's the same kind of vision that you have here. Indeed, I think there are a number of clues right here in Mark 9, a number of clues in this narrative that show us that the transfiguration really should be understood as a preview of what is to come. A revelation of Jesus' coming glory. A, a, re, a preview of that resurrection victory and resurrection glory he will have when he comes into his kingdom after his death and in his resurrection. I think verse 2 is a clue. Verse 2 tells us that the transfiguration took place six days after Jesus taught his disciples about the cross. So Jesus is teaching his disciples about the cross, and then six days later he goes up on the mountain and he is transfigured. Now, to include that, that detail that this took place six days later, that's very unusual for Mark. Mark in his gospel really does not give very many chronological markers. He doesn't give very many timestamps to tell you this is when something happened. Uh, usually, Mark just moves from one event to the next at this breakneck pace. And he'll tell you about something that happens, and then he'll say, immediately, Jesus went here and did that. And then immediately went there and did that. And so it's just immediately, immediately, immediately. It comes at you like a machine gun fire. But here Mark gives us this chronological detail. He says this took place six days later. And so for Mark to call attention to this uh, chronology is, uh, I think, significant. We need to pay attention to it. Now, you also need to understand that ancient writers had different ways of counting Days, and that actually comes out in the gospel. So, for example, when Luke gives his account of the transfiguration, he tells us that it took place about eight days later, about eight days after Jesus was teaching on the cross, the transfiguration happened. So Luke associates the transfiguration with the eighth day. For Luke, it's an eighth day event. 
Mark associates it with the sixth day. There's no contradiction there. It's just different ways of, uh, of counting days, different types of calendars being used. But we have to ask, why does Mark link it with the sixth day? Well, think about what happened on the first sixth day in the Bible, the sixth day of the creation week in Genesis 1. That's when God makes man. That's when God creates man. Why does this happen on the sixth day? Because it shows us Jesus is going to be a new man, a new Adam, the founder of a new humanity. Uh, He's going to be the true man who will enter into that seventh day, because Mark says it was actually after six days. He's going to be the one who enters into that Sabbath glory on the seventh day. And really the Sabbath is all about rule and enthronement. See, Jesus is going to be the one who enters into that rule. He's going to be the one who is enthroned. He's going to enter into the fullness of God's glory. Jesus will become all that the original Adam was supposed to be. He'll be a new Adam who does what the first Adam should have have done but failed. He will enter into the glory that the first Adam fell short of reaching. So what does the transfiguration reveal? What's the mystery being put on display here? Putting together what we've seen so far, the transfiguration is a revelation of Jesus' glory as the God-man. A revelation of his divine glory and his human glory. It's a revelation of the glory of the person Jesus, the God-man. Now, actually, I think... um, So I think what you can say here is the glory on display in the transfiguration is the glory Jesus had as God from before the foundation of the world, as well as the glory he will have as man when he rises from the dead. It's his glory as the God man. I think you can really say the same thing is going on, the same kind of double revelation is going on when the father's voice speaks from heaven. The Father's voice speaks from heaven, speaks out of the glory cloud that has overshadowed them. And the Father declares Jesus to be his son, his beloved son. Well, think about that. What does it mean for Jesus to be God's son? I think we have to say this includes his eternal sonship. The Father has never been without his son. That father-son relationship has existed from all eternity. That's part of what's going on here. But also, if you read through the Hebrew Scriptures, you find in the Old Testament, the King of Israel is often referred to as God's Son. And so, for example, in Psalm 2, a passage that would have been familiar to to every Jew, uh, it was part of the coronation liturgy used when they crowned a king. There in Psalm 2, God the Father says that he has set his king on his holy hill of Zion, And then the Lord says to the king, you are my son, today I have begotten. But what do you have here in Mark 9? You have a son who is on a hill, on a mountain, entering into kingly glory. It's a preview, really, of his enthronement that is to come. Jesus is the promised king. He's the son of God who will be king over Israel and indeed king over all the nations. In fact, here in Mark 9, we see that the voice from heaven, the Father calls him the beloved Son. That too, I think, is 
significant. Why does the Father call him the beloved son? Certainly, again, it's that love the Father and Son have shared from all eternity. But you know who the beloved son is in the Old Testament scriptures? The beloved son of the Old Testament is Abraham's son, Isaac. In Genesis chapter 22, God comes to Abraham, who'd waited so long to have a son. And now God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, your beloved son, and go up on the mountain I show you, and there sacrifice him. Isaac is the beloved son. Now Jesus is identified as the beloved son. What does it mean? It means Jesus is the Isaac-like son whom his father is willing to not spare. It means Jesus will be an Isaac-like sacrifice who will be offered because this time the father is not going to pull back the knife at the last moment. This son, this Isaac, will be sacrificed for the salvation of the nations. See, why is Jesus addressed as son here as beloved son? It's because he is the divine human son of God who has come to do what only God can do and to do what man must do in order to bring about our redemption. He's the son of God who is also the son of man. He's one with God and he's one with us. And so he can do God's part in bringing about our salvation and he can do humanity's part in bringing about our salvation. That's what the declaration means. But take it one step further. Again, what's the mystery being revealed here on the Mount of Transfiguration? The fact that the transfiguration happened six days after Jesus has been talking about his death on the cross is meant to show the disciples how it's all going to work. It's meant to show the disciples that Jesus' suffering, which he's talked about, and his glory, which he's now given them a glimpse of, are really part of the same story. The suffering and the glory are not incompatible. They're not at odds with one another. Rather, they intertwine. Indeed, it is his death that will lead to the glory. Yes, as Jesus has already spoken, when he goes to Jerusalem, he will be rejected. He'll suffer and be killed. Dark tribulation is coming. Great trial is coming. But on the other side of all that darkness, there is brilliant, radiant, blinding glory. And so it's as though to say through these events, for Jesus and for those who follow him and stick with him, even in the darkest of times, glory awaits. Glory is coming. The suffering will not be in vain. See, what is the transfiguration? The transfiguration really is a promise. It's a promise given to Jesus himself by his Father that after he suffers, he will indeed enter into glory. But it's also a promise given to the disciples to sustain them and to prepare them for what's coming. The transfiguration says to the disciples, yes, suffering is coming, but glory is sure to follow. See, the transfiguration reveals a mystery. It reveals a mystery, really, that is right at the heart of the gospel. It reveals the mystery of who Jesus is. Jesus is the God-man. It reveals to us the mystery of what he's come to do. First he must suffer, then he will enter into his glory. That's the mystery of the transfiguration. 
But it's a mystery the disciples don't really understand. We have to turn to particularly Peter's misinterpretation of this event. See, Peter misinterprets what's happening, and Mark has recorded this for us so we can learn from it. So we want to consider this as well. When Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, Elijah and Moses appear there on the mountain as well. Moses, of course, is the great lawgiver in the Old Testament. Uh, Elijah represents all the prophets. And so together, Moses and Elijah, you could say, represent the entirety of the Old Covenant. They represent the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, when Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain with Jesus, Peter recognizes them. He recognizes them for who they are. That's good. I would guess that Peter, as a student of Scripture, even noticed all kinds of connections between what was happening here with Jesus on the mountain and what had happened with Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, particularly what's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus 24, Moses prepares for six days before ascending the mountain. It's the same with Jesus here. In Exodus, Moses takes three named men with him up on the mountain, two of whom are brothers. Jesus does the same here in Mark. In Exodus, Moses shines with glory because he's been in God's presence. In Mark, Jesus becomes radiant as well. Even his clothes become brilliantly white. In Exodus, Moses is overshadowed by God's glory cloud and a voice speaks out of the cloud, it's the same with Jesus here. As they are overshadowed by the glory cloud, a voice from heaven speaks. In the book of Exodus, the people are afraid to come near to Moses after he descends the mountain. They're so amazed at what's happened. In Mark's gospel, we're told that the disciples were deeply afraid on the mountain. When Jesus comes down off the mountain, we're told that the people are astonished by him. Now see, Peter knew his Bible. Peter knew his Bible well. Uh, he, he probably would have noted a lot of those connections. It, seeing all this happen on the mountain probably would have triggered for him all of those connections with the book of Exodus. He gets that much right, but pretty much everything else he gets wrong. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says to Jesus, Rabbi. I don't know why he goes back to calling Jesus Rabbi right after confessing he's the Christ, but that's what he does here. He says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Okay, this is the first problem Peter has. Peter puts Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. He says, Rabbi, so you're, you're, I'm recognizing you as a teacher, Jesus. Let's build tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because you're all really the same, right? Uh, no. No, Jesus is not just another lawgiver. He's not just another prophet in a long line of prophets. He is the one who has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He is the one who will complete the story of Israel begun in the law and the prophets. He will bring the law and the prophets to their climax and to their conclusion. And indeed, that's why the voice from heaven speaks out of the glory cloud. And the father says, this is my beloved son here, him. His word trumps every other word that has come previously. His word is greater than the word of Elijah and the word of Moses. Jesus is unique. He's the one you should hear. The word of Jesus is supreme. It reigns over every other word, every previous word of Moses and the prophets. 
Indeed, again, he fulfills the law and the prophets. So you can't just put Jesus in a series with Moses and Elijah. They're not on par with him. They don't have his rank or his glory or his authority. So Peter gets that wrong. He puts Jesus on a level with Elijah and Moses, not recognizing the uniqueness and the supremacy of Jesus over Moses and Elijah. But he gets something else wrong here, too, in his desire to build tabernacles. What's this all about? Why does he want to build tabernacles for Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the mountain? I mean, it might seem that that's not such a bad idea. After all, every time glory like this shows up in the Old Testament, what do God's people do? They build a house for it. They build some kind of tabernacle to house the glory. But Peter is still misunderstanding what's going on here. It's as if Peter is thinking, you know, really what we should do here is just settle down. Let's stay here on the mountaintop. Let's prolong this mountaintop experience, this mountaintop glory. And if we do that, maybe we can avoid the suffering. And maybe there won't have to be a cross like what Jesus has been talking about. See, the voice out of the cloud says, hear him, hear the Son. Peter doesn't want to hear what the Son has had to say. Peter may be thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles when he says, let's build these three houses, these three shelters, and the Feast of Tabernacles. We read about it from Leviticus this morning. The Israelites would build miniature tabernacles or shelters to dwell in for the duration of this feast as a way of remembering the Exodus and remembering how God dwelt with his people, how God tabernacled among his people in the Exodus and their wilderness wandering. Or perhaps Peter is thinking of the Israelite battle cry, Every man to his tent, O Israel. That's a battle cry that shows up in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Those words, to your tents, to your shelters, every man in Israel. Summoning the men in Israel to prepare for war, to prepare for battle. Go to your tent and get yourself ready for battle. Maybe Peter's thinking, hey, you know what? We should just set up Messianic headquarters right here on this mountain. We can make our battle camp right here on this mountain and prepare ourselves for war, prepare ourselves with, for, for battle with the Romans and with the infidels in Israel. And again, maybe all that suffering and rejection talk, that cross talk Jesus has been doing, maybe none of that will have to happen. After all, Peter's probably thinking, with this kind of glory in the camp and with Moses and Elijah on our side, how can we lose how can we lose? We've got the great wonder workers, the great miracle workers of the Old Testament. We've got Jesus here who, who we know can do wonders. How can we lose? Let's get the battle camp set up. See, Jesus, Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter wants to take this moment and make it permanent. He wants to preserve this moment. He wants to keep the glory there. Whatever the specifics of Peter's thought process, uh, Mark tells us, he didn't know what he was talking about. He was speaking foolishly. His interpretation of the transfiguration is wrong. The transfiguration does not mean there's some alternative path to glory where Jesus can get there without having to go through the cross. It doesn't mean there's some alternative pathway to victory without having to suffer, without having to go through the cross. See, at the end of Mark 8, Jesus rebukes Peter for thinking about things and looking at things through a worldly lens, from a worldly perspective. Jesus says, you have in mind not the things of God, 
but the things of men. Well, Peter's still doing that. He's still doing that. He still doesn't get it. He's missed the trajectory. He's missed the arc. He's, he's missed the shape that Jesus' ministry will follow, the shape it will take. He does not see that, yes, glory is coming, but the glory follows the cross, and there's no other way to get there apart from the cross. Again, the sequence in Mark 8 and 9 shows us that. What do you have in Mark 8 and 9? You put it together. You have the passion predictions of Jesus followed by the transfiguration. Jesus talks about his cross, and then he gives them a glimpse of the glory to come after the cross. The order there, the, the narrative pattern here shows you the glory comes after the cross. But Peter doesn't get that because he doesn't want it to be that way. Peter is really, you could say, celebrating Messiah's victory prematurely. Uh, I recently saw a YouTube video that uh, featured football players who had celebrated too soon. They were on their way to score a touchdown and they started celebrating before they crossed the goal line and they dropped the ball or they had the ball stripped away from them and in some way their premature celebration backfired and blew up in their faces. Probably the most famous premature celebration, the most famous of these celebration fails was Leon Lett, uh, who played defensive line for the Dallas Cowboys. And this was in a Super Bowl, that's why it's so famous. Uh, Leon Lett recovered a fumble, and you know it's every defensive lineman's dream to score a touchdown. And he's running it in for a score, and he starts to hold out the ball to celebrate. And one of the Buffalo Bills receivers, who obviously was much, much faster, is running down the field and catches up with Leon Lett just before he crosses into the end zone and strips the ball away. And so Leon Lett's premature celebration meant that he was left with nothing to celebrate. It, it means the whole reason for celebrating early was taken away. He, he got the ball stripped away. He, he lost his reason for celebrating. His premature celebration cost him. There was nothing left to celebrate. Okay. That's what Peter is doing here. Peter is the Leon Lett of the New Testament. He's celebrating prematurely. He's celebrating before the battle's really been won, before the touchdown's been scored. Peter's excited and rightfully so. It's been about 600 years since anyone has seen God's glory cloud. Moses and the Israelites saw that glory cloud when it moved into the tabernacle. Solomon and, and the Israelites saw the glory cloud again when it moved into the temple. Ezekiel was the last to see this glory cloud. He had a vision of the glory cloud moving and going to be with the Israelites in exile. Peter's excited. They've seen the glory cloud. Peter, James, and John get to see it. But because they haven't been listening to Jesus, because they haven't heard the word of the Son, they miss what it means. The glory cloud doesn't mean it's time to celebrate now. It means a celebration is coming. But hear the word of the Son. The Son's been talking about the cross. That's how you get there. Yes, this glory cloud and this transfiguration of Jesus is, is a preview. It's an appetizer. It's hors d'oeuvres. It's a prelude of what is to come. But contrary to what Peter wants to do here, that glory can't be housed yet. The glory won't come to stay until after the cross. That's when the glory will take up residence in the new house of God, the new temple of God, which is the church. And you know, actually, if Peter had thought about this a little bit more, he might have realized 
that this is how it had to be. Because you know what? Before Moses saw the glory cloud descend upon the tabernacle, before, uh, before Ezekiel could see the glory cloud, they both had to experience very severe rejection. Before Elijah had his theophany, before Elijah got to see the glory of God passing by, he had to experience rejection. They all had to experience rejection before they got to see God's glory. And in a way, really, that's how it will be for Jesus and the disciples. They do get a preview of it here, but before they get to experience that glory permanently, before they enter into that glory, there's got to be suffering. There's glory to come, but there's a price to be paid to get there. Before the glory comes for good, Jesus has to go to the cross. Well, that's how Peter misinterprets the glory. Finally, let's turn to the meaning of this glory, the meaning of the transfiguration for us today. What does this mean for our lives? How does this change our lives, change how we view Jesus, how we view life? Well, I think it's kind of obvious, really, at this point. This whole sequence, this whole pattern in Mark 8 and 9 shows us the, 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 the plan that God has for Jesus' life. It's cross and then glory. And that's really the pattern of the Christian life as well. The, the pattern of the Christian life follows the same trajectory as Jesus' own life. As Paul will put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, our present sufferings, which he describes as light and momentary, our present sufferings are working for us an eternal weight of glory. So let me put it to you this way. Let's just say, hypothetically speaking, that somebody came to church this morning discouraged. Okay, probably none of you are discouraged, but let's just say that you know, somebody in here, hypothetically speaking, has something to be discouraged about. Something in your life isn't working out the way that you want it to. Perhaps you have a difficult family situation. Uh, perhaps you're having a very hard time at work. Perhaps it's health struggles that you or a family member are enduring. Perhaps it's a battle with sin that's left its scars on your life and you're not winning that battle as much as you would like to. Perhaps it's frustration with God because you've been praying for something that you know is a good thing for a long, long time. And you've got this long-term unanswered prayer in your life. Maybe you've got something that is discouraging. Maybe it's some combination of those things. Maybe it's something else. If you're discouraged, this story is for you. This story of Jesus' transfiguration is for you because it shows you what it's all about. What is God doing in your life through all the crosses he makes you carry? What is God doing in your life through all the burdens that he lays on you? What is God doing in your life when he puts you through the ringer of suffering? What is God doing? He is preparing you for glory. He is preparing you for glory. Glory is coming. Glory is going to be yours. He is forming you and crafting you into the kind of person who will dazzle who will radiate light, who will shine in glory. And I would say this, even right now, certainly this glory comes in an ultimate way in the future. But even right now, as you seek to follow Jesus, even in the difficulty of your circumstances, even while you're still in the midst of your suffering, 
Christ's glory is rubbing off on you. And even now, you're beginning to shine. Even in the midst of your weakness and your darkness, glory is shining through you. You're like a clay pot that's cracked and broken in certain places. But you know what the cracks do? Is they let the glory inside shine out. Those cracks and breaks and fissures in your life, glory is shining through those cracks. As you seek to be faithful to Jesus in the midst of your trials and your difficult circumstances. See, in Jesus' own life, the cross is linked with glory. The cross is linked with glory in our lives as well. And so really, the transfiguration shows us what the Christian life is all about. In 2 Corinthians 3, actually, I think Paul uses the transfiguration as a model for the Christian life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, We all, with unveiled faces, reflect the glory of the Lord as a mirror and are being transformed into the Lord's image from glory to glory. In fact, there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul uses the same word that's used here in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 tells us Jesus was transfigured, or more literally, we would say he's metamorphosized. That's the word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to describe the Christian life. We're transfigured. We're metamorphosized from one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory. We're reflecting the Lord's glory. We reflect that glory to one another. We reflect it back to the Lord himself. Your trials don't block that glory from shining. Your struggles don't block that glory from shining. Your trials are opportunities for the glory to shine even brighter. As God is forming you into the image and likeness of his son. That's what God is doing. He's molding you into Christ's image. And what drives this process of transfiguration, this process of metamorphosis, what drives this process of transformation? The voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, hear him. In Deuteronomy 18, the people of God are promised a prophet, one greater than Moses. And it says, him you shall hear. Jesus is that greater prophet, that greater word from God. He's the ultimate prophet because he not only speaks God's word, he is God's word in the flesh. And the voice from heaven, the voice out of the glory cloud, focuses all our attention on Jesus alone. His word is above the word even of the law and the prophets because it fulfills the law and the prophets. He is God's last word, final word, and ultimate word to us. Isn't it interesting that the voice says, hear him? Here Jesus is shining with glory. He's blindingly white. He's dazzling in splendor and radiance. And the voice from heaven doesn't say, look at my son. It doesn't say, gaze your eyes upon his radiant glory. No, the voice is not look. The voice says, listen. Hear him. Hear what he has to say. Hear his word. Believe and obey his word. And what is the word he speaks that we must believe and heed? It is the word of the cross. It's the word he was speaking six days earlier. The word that Peter refused to hear. The word of the cross. That's the word 
we must hear. It's not the sight of Jesus' glory that's going to drive your transformation. It's hearing and heeding his word. It's not seeing his dazzling glory, but it's the sound of his voice that drives your transfiguration and your transformation. And I think in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter really captures this as he reflects on this event of the transfiguration and says, in essence, it's better to have the word of God than to have been an eyewitness to the transfiguration on the mountain. Peter says it's, it's better to have the prophetic word which shines into the darkness than to have been there on the mountain and to have seen Jesus transfigured. The prophetic word is more sure. See, if you have the word of Christ, you have all you could ever want or need. Why? Because when you hear the Son, what happens? What does He say? The voice of the Son assures us we are loved. The word of the Son assures us we are forgiven because His blood has been shed for us. The voice of the Son gives us wisdom and guidance and direction. The word of the Son leads us in the way of the cross, which is the way to glory. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that You have spoken to us through Your Son. May we hear and heed his word. May we believe and obey his word. May his word fill us with assurance that we are loved and forgiven. May his word lead us in the way of the cross. We know this is the way of victory, the way of glory, the way in which you would have us walk as you conform us to his image. This we pray in his name. Amen.